all that is in the world stems from these three. That's especially what we want to cover tonight. But to make sure that we have a clear understanding of, well, what is sin? Let's make sure that we begin there by way of introduction, and then we'll come right back to these three things. What is sin? Let's let John answer this. You have your Bible open, look at 1 John, the third chapter. You see there in verse 4? In 1 John, the third chapter, in verse 4, he says, Whosoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. In other words, he says, if you've sinned, you've done something else simultaneously. You have broken the law. I believe it's the King James translation that says that you have transgressed. And the word transgress means that you have gone beyond. And so let's finish this here in verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness or sin is transgression. So what is sin? Sin is taking any boundary that God gives us. Times that he says, do this. Or times that he says, thou shalt not do this. Any of those boundaries that he places in our life and we choose to go beyond his will, that is sin. Transgression. To go beyond. So how does this sin draw us into this worldliness? Go, if you will, to James, the first chapter, and let's see exactly how temptation moves us into sin. And then let's go back and let's dissect verse 16 of 1 John, the second chapter. But right now, let's go to James, the first chapter. It'll be about 1,073 in the Bible. The senior pews there, somewhere around that, 1,073. I'd like for you to notice as we begin in verse 13. James 1 and 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now let's place this teaching in the framework of what we studied this morning. You know, this morning we gave a clear definition of what this system of sin is, and it's the world, is what God calls it. And then we talked about how we do not want to live in the world because we want the love of God abiding in us, and we do not want to invest our life in things that are passing away. We want to invest our life in things that are eternal. In other words, I want to walk with God. I don't want to walk with the world. Now, do you see again how this falls in that framework? He says, anytime you're tempted to leave here and go over into the world, he says, don't you blame God for that. God never tempts anyone to go back toward the world. God never tempts anyone to sin. That's a whole different area than what God would do. Later he would say all good gifts are from God. God does not tempt anyone. So now let's, let's lay this out in 14. But each one, as every one of us, there's no exception to any of us here. Each one is tempted. When? Don't you love it when the Bible spells it out that simple? When are we tempted? What, what is the soil that grows the, 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 the sin in our life? He says, I can tell you what that soil is. Anyone, anyone is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, notice these words that are reproductive words. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, the reason I especially want us to begin tonight is you remember the three things that we're going to study tonight that draws us. In other words, this morning, and, and if you weren't here this morning, a big plea about this morning was how terrible the world is, but then we asked the question kind of toward the end saying we'd answer tonight. If the world's so terrible, why does it have an appeal to us? 
I mean, think about it. If Surely all of us that are thinking spiritually not, we'd say, the world's horrible. I absolutely don't want to play, be in a place where God is not. So then why does it have an appeal? Well, two out of the three contain the word lust. It's the lust of the flesh that draws us into the world. It's the lust of the eyes that draws us into the world. And then the pride of life. I need to understand this concept of lust and understand how dangerous it is because it is lust that is inside us. Now, I'm going a little bit beyond my day, but if I throw this out wrong, pardon me, okay? But wasn't it Flip Wilson that, that made famous that, that saying, the devil made me do it? You know, we chalk everything up to Satan. If, if we're not careful, we think that Satan is a god. We literally give like, like sovereign characteristics to Satan. Do you realize Satan is not a god? Satan cannot be everywhere at one time. The idea that, that Satan walks beside you every moment of every day, he's, he can't walk beside everybody around the world every moment of every day. We say, well, why am I tempted so often if it may not be Satan that's beside me so often? You know where a huge part of the temptation of sin comes from? Look at it again in 14. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Where does sin come from? When we look over into Matthew, the 15th chapter, he says in verse 18 and 19, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with wash, unwashing hands does not defile a man. In a minute, we're going to read a list that sounds very similar to this, and it's going to be from the works of the flesh. Where does this come from? It comes from inside us when we allow our heart to begin to desire things that are sinful. And so, let's go back now to James 1. Where does sin come from? It, it's like reproduction. Two things have to come together and conceive for sin to be born. One, there has to be a desire within my heart to do wrong. That's the definition of lust, is sinful desire. Now, I know a lot of times when we hear the word lust, we immediately think sexual immorality. That's a part of lust, but that is such a narrow scope of lust that, that we are missing so much more that's being taught. Lust is simply sinful desire. And so whenever I have in my heart, I have sinful desire, and notice the next thing they says in 14, and enticed. So now not only do I have this sinful desire inside, notice now I'm coming back towards the world. I'm making this pull. And it's, it's as if the world is saying, we've got the opportunity here for you to fulfill your sinful desire. Well, what happens when we have the joining together? We have reproduction here. What happens when we have the joining together of my sinful desire that's in my heart and the opportunity for that sinful desire to be lived out? What is born? Sin is born. And if I stay in that situation, it's going to, full, it's going to mature. It's going to become full-born death. It's going to separate me from God. Do you see why it is so important that we guard our heart. That is the primary ingredient 
of temptation and of sin. The things that you have no desire in your heart to do are not tempting to you. And so when the opportunity comes around, you pass on that opportunity because it's not tempting to you. The things that are tempting to you, you and I need to be very fervent in our prayer. We need to be very intentional in learning all of the truth that we can learn. And we need to guard our hearts by depending upon God to help us guard our hearts so that when that opportunity arises, we're seeing the truth and not the deception of Satan. Okay, so let's take this now that we see how important it is for us to guard lust, to not let sinful desires come into our life. Let's go back now and, and let's look again. First John, the second chapter, notice that text again. For all that's in the world, and he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What is the lust of the flesh? You know, sometimes when, when we look at a phrase, and, and you know, the first feeling maybe is, oh, that would be easy to define. And then you kind of study it over and you say, okay, it's not quite as easy as what I thought. Well, what's the natural thing to do then? Is just start breaking down the words. And so when we break down the words, it becomes much easier to find. Lust, what's that? The sinful desire that's within a person? Lust of what? Lust of the flesh. Well, what's the flesh? Let's go to Galatians, the fifth chapter, and let's see how God defines what the flesh would be in our life. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, when we go there, not only do we see the flesh defined, uh, but, and by the way, in your Bible and your pew, that's 1,036, but we also see lust of the flesh uh, incorporated in this teaching. We're at Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 16. And I, I say then... Galatians 5 and 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, what are we studying about? Lust of the flesh. So he says, if you will walk over here in the Spirit, in other words, not in the world. If you walk in the world, you can't do this. If you'll walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 17. And, and by the way, as we read 17, you remember this morning we talked about that if you're of the world, the love of God doesn't abide in you. And we talked about how they're contrary to each other. They can't live in the same place. Notice how he teaches that same thing in different words in verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Hear that teaching? That's another way of saying no man can serve two masters. You can't follow the flesh and follow the spirit. They're contrary to each other. Now look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are... Now pause here for a moment. Keep in mind, this, this list are the things that are lived out. These are the actual works. Where did they come from? They came from a heart that had a desire to do these things and the opportunity in the world to fulfill these things and we've stepped over into the world and here's the result of that desire and of that opportunity. Now as I read through this list, odds are there's not going to be many people here that say, I struggle with every one of those. And when we say works of the flesh, a lot of the time our mind immediately jumps to what we think of some of the worst. You know, well, if it's works of flesh, that's probably like murder. That, that might be things like adultery. That might be... What sin separates you from God? Any sin separates us from God. And so when we think about works of the flesh, the sinful desire 
the sinful attitudes, the sinful thoughts, the sinful actions. In other words, anything that is against the will of God, that's what is a part of the work of the flesh. And so notice this list. And yes, there's going to be things that we look at and say, I don't struggle with that. And there's going to be other things we probably say, I do struggle with that. There's going to be things that we say, oh, that's big. And there's going to be things that we say, well, little. I'm just saying that's dangerous. It's dangerous to say big and little. If it's works of the flesh, it separates me from God. So, so let's look at this list here and let's see what kind of desire. And as we read this, don't just think about your actions. Think about your heart. Think about your desire. What do you have a desire? Is anything on this list you say, I have that within me? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Those first four definitely are connected to sexual immorality. From adultery to fornication, then maybe your, your sexual immorality is not those things. Maybe it's just uncleanliness, like, like a, a vulgar thought or, or maybe lustful thoughts within or maybe pornography or things. And then finally, lewdness is just taking all of that step further and, and it's becoming almost like an addiction. All right, let's read on. But then also things like idolatry. Someone says, well, I thought that was just a false religion. No, that's a work of the flesh. Let's, let's continue here. He, he says in, in 20, sorcery, hatred, works of the flesh. If we're following the Spirit, what do we do to our enemies? We love our enemies. We do good for them. We pray for them. If we're living by the works of the flesh... We hate them. Now, where does this begin? It begins inside the heart. If you have an enemy right now, what is stirring in your heart? Is it hatred or is it love? And if it's hatred, just know when that opportunity comes for you to live out that hatred, you know where somebody says, I can't believe I said that. Well, you know why we say that? Because we already had that stirring in our heart and all we needed was the opportunity for it to come out. The problem wasn't it came out. The problem was it was already stirring in our heart. And, and we continue to read this list. Like contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you before, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice how at the end of that list, at the beginning of 21, he said, and the like. In other words, Paul's telling us this isn't a comprehensive list. There's a lot more that could have been listed. And he's saying, it's sins like this that I'm talking about. That's the works of the flesh. How does this action come about? Because the world offers opportunities. And, and who steps into those opportunities? People that has, they already have those desires stirring within their heart. And that desire is fulfilled through that opportunity. And now we find ourselves living out in the world. The lust of the flesh. But what about the lust of the eyes? When we consider the lust of the eyes, I'd like you to go to Matthew, the fifth chapter, which probably is the typical go-to verse here, but I really want to broaden our scope of this uh, by the next passage that we turn to. But let's start with what is kind of the given in most people's mind. The easiest thing for us to do when we think about lust of the eyes is we think about Matthew, the fifth chapter, that gives a clear teaching of, of a, a, a type of sexual sin here that began in the heart because of lust. Again, what is lust? Sinful desire. What? What? Uh, are the eyes. The eyes are the window to the heart. 
And so, so many things that is stirring in our heart is being fed information by our eyes. So if the heart is already stirring on things that's wrong, the eyes are going to start looking for things that are wrong. And this look is going to do what? It's going to become a part of the enticement of the heart. And, and so here's an example. What about if a man is, is, is married and he's already not guarding his heart, he's already thinking about other women, what is his eyes going to naturally look for? His eyes are naturally going to look for other women. And then someone says, well, I, I guess he stumbled upon her. No, he was looking for it. Whether he admits it or not, he was, because it goes back to the heart. And, and notice how he says this in, in 27, Matthew 5 and 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And, and now in 28, but the Lord says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust, a sinful desire to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. And he teaches the same thing about your right hand. And, and if it's caused you to sin, cut it off. What's the teaching? Lust, sinful desire of the eye. What is your heart telling your eyes to look for? Have you thought about in the scriptures, individuals, that their eyes got them in trouble? Remember Lot's wife? All she had to do was guard where she cast her eyes. And she didn't. Instead, she looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Remember Achan? You remember he was doing just fine until he saw those items and covetousness set in. He started thinking, I really want that. I really want those things. And he sinned in order to get those. David, there's no reason for us to believe that he was up to mischief whenever he was on the rooftop of his palace. But yet he chose not to take his eyes off of Bathsheba as she was bathing. He chose to continue to look at her and then invite her closer to him. And the sin seemed to snowball. Why? Because these individuals were not controlling what they desired to look upon. If my idea is, I just want to stop sin right before it takes place, that's not healthy, it's not righteous. What we have to do is say, I want to stop the actual conception of sin. I want a pure heart. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to love God with my eyes. I want to guard what my eyes do. I want to love God with my hands. I want to guard what my hands do. I want to love God with my mind. I want to guard what I think. Just to help us make sure we realize that this isn't only attached to sexual things, go back, if you will, to Exodus, the 20th chapter. Exodus, the 20th chapter. This is a listing of the Ten Commandments. The last of the Ten Commandments is not to covet, because usually that sin is tied to the eyes. 
It's usually us seeing something and then forming a sinful desire that's feeding that sinful desire for things. And, and notice this simple teaching in the 20th chapter in verse 17 is page 68 in the Bible that's in your pew, page 68. Look in 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Pause there for a moment. Lord, what do you want me to guard my eyes? He says, you know when you go over to your neighbor and there's something about your, their house that in your mind's eye, it's better than your house? Don't let your eyes start playing the coveting game. Don't covet their house. Also, still in 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servants or his female servants. I wish I had a servant to clean my house. I wish I had a servant that made sure that my meals were ready on time. And, you know, I have to go out and mow my yard. I wish I had a servant to mow my yard. I envy my neighbor. The Lord says, don't use your eyes like that. Don't use your eyes to covet what other people have. The competing game is a sinful game. It's leading us deeper and deeper into sin. Let's continue reading. Nor his ox, nor his donkey. In comparison for us today, that's like equipment. That's like machinery. That, that, that's like vehicles. He says, when, when you see them and they have oxen to work fields, and you only have one oxen. They have donkeys so that they can ride and you're having to walk. Don't covet. Don't covet what they have. And then he goes on to say, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Anything. But let's conclude tonight by looking at the pride of life. Let's not participate in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Recently in Sunday morning Bible class, you had a tremendous lesson on the danger of pride. The truth is pride seems to be attached to almost every sin. I'd like to close this lesson by simply going to James, the fourth chapter, and I'd like for us to scan some things out of these verses and then wrap this up as we think about the pride of life. How dangerous is pride in our lives? In the fourth chapter in verse 1, it's page 1074 in the Bible that's in your pews, 1074. Look at James 4, beginning verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from, notice this, do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? See, he's talking to lust again. Why is it that some families just can't get along? Why is it that some workplaces, they can't get along? Why is it that some people are always the one creating strife? And he says, i tell you why. They have a desire within them that everything's about them. You need to make me happy. Listen, this family needs to plan the family reunion around me. This family needs to plan supper around me. This family needs to plan vacations around me. How far does that go? Individuals say, oh, I do that so that I'll be happy. You ever notice that person's never happy? That person's always in strife. That person is always in arguments. Why? Because it is sinful pleasure. It's lust. It's selfish desire that is fueling that. It's never going to end up good. And so we go to verse 2 along the same lines. He even calls it lust this time instead of just sinful desire. He says in verse 2, you lust and you do not have. Isn't that interesting? You want more, you want more, but you don't get it. You murder and covet, but yet you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. See, now we're starting to touch on pride. Why don't we ask? 
I can take care of myself. You mean you really pray to God like really expecting Him to answer you? <laughs> People that are weak do that. I take care of myself. I take care of my own family. I don't need to depend upon anybody else. Notice how this is starting to move toward pride versus humility. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Why do you want your children to succeed? Why do we want our child to be valedictorian? Do we really push them for that because we think that some way they can be a greater servant to God, to their classmates because of that? Or do we want them to be valedictorian because, hey, they will prove to everybody that they're a little bit better than everybody else? Pride versus humility. Why do you want to be the top salesman at your work? So everybody will know that you're the one that can get the job done? Or do you believe that to be the top salesman at your work, you'd be able to be a greater influence for God? He says, you don't have because you ask amiss. Listen, if our prayers to God is, God, please give us this house, but it's not a godly reason we want that house, you may get the house, but it won't be God that helped you get it. If your prayer is for greater health, so that you can do something that draws attention to you but leaves God out of it, it's not going to be God that gives you that greater health. God says, I don't answer prayers that has to do with pride-filled motives. Let's, let's read on here. Uh, we read this verse this morning, verse 4, that if you're going to be friends with the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. And then uh, in verse 5, the reason is because God is a jealous God, and it's a righteous jealousy that God has. He's not going to share his children with Satan that hurts his children. And so that's why he's a jealous God. And this brings us down to verse 6. But he gives more grace. In other words, not just saving grace, but generous grace. Uh, gracious in all kinds of gifts. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says... God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so in seven, if we're willing to submit to God, that's humility, we can resist Satan. Verse eight, we can draw near to God. We can be cleansed. We can be purified. Verse nine, we can mourn over our sins. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up. God will lift us up first out of that world and he will bring us over to a place where the love of God exists tonight. Have you been delivered from that world? It's so easy for us to have sinful desire of the flesh, sinful desires of the eyes. It is so easy for us to make life about us. But yet it never brings the fulfillment. And God says, if you'll be humble, if you'll guard your heart, and you'll guard your eyes, I can exalt you. I can bring you to a great place. I can be gracious to you. Tonight, if you tried it your way and you're ready for some relief, you're ready for rest, you're ready for God's grace, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.